be time once again for the Caverships podcast where we try and cut through the fog the murk the sand the dust shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day i'm chris cavis and i'm chris cervello all right coming up today the house and the senate armed services committees have approved big increases in the number of new ships to buy and in the pentagon's overall budget but where's the money will the appropriations committees agree and hurricanes, floods, rising waters. We take a look at how hurricanes and climate change can hit the Navy in its shipbuilding breadbasket, the Gulf Coast. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. As we record this podcast, five people remain missing after the crash on August 31st of an MH-60 Sierra helicopter from Helicopter Sea Combat Squadron 8 while operating aboard the aircraft carrier Abraham Lincoln. The Navy has released few details, but the incident took place while the Hilo was operating on the carrier's flight deck. One helicopter crewman was rescued shortly after the Hilo went into the sea, and five Lincoln sailors on the ship's flight deck were injured in the accident. The Lincoln was engaged in training exercises about 60 miles off the Southern California coast. The British carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth and her strike group 21 continued operating in the Western Pacific as August drew to a close, Aircraft from Queen Liz flew on August 26th with those from Carrier Air Wing 2 flying from the American carrier Carl Vinson. The aircraft included F-35C Joint Strike Fighters flying from Vinson and F-35Bs from the Queen Elizabeth. On August 28th, the Vinson put into Yokosuka, Japan for a port visit. The U.S. Coast Guard Cutter Monroe also continued a busy Western Pacific deployment. After operating with the Japanese Coast Guard and making a Taiwan Strait transit, the California-based cutter conducted exercises with Filipino Coast Guard and Bureau of Fisheries units before arriving in Subic Bay on August 31st. The small Russian Corvette Sovetsk on August 31st launched a caliber NK cruise missile from the White Sea and hit a target more than 1,000 kilometers away near Arkhangelsk. The exercise was another demonstration of how very small Russian warships, in this case a 220-foot-long, 860-ton ship, can use the caliber missile to hit targets from distances up to and exceeding 1,000 miles away. The Sovetsk is a member of the Project 22800 Karakurt class, now in series production for the Russian Navy. The Lyndon B. Johnson third and last ship of the DDG-1000 Zumwalt class of large stealth destroyers, completed initial sea trials September 2nd and returned to the General Dynamics Bath Iron Works shipyard in Maine. While the hull, mechanical, and engineering systems were tested, the ship is still a long way away from being complete, and full combat system installation and activation remains to be done before a scheduled delivery to the Navy in late 2023 or early 2024. The previous two ships of the class, Zumwalt and Michael Mansour, are based in San Diego, where Lyndon Johnson will join them upon entering service. On September 2nd, the House Armed Services Committee approved its fiscal 2022 defense authorization bill. By an overwhelming 57 to 2 vote, the HASC added five ships to the Navy's request, 
for a total of 13 ships, adding an additional two destroyers, an amphibious assault ship, another expeditionary fast transport, and another fleet oiler to the 2023 budget. The HASC also approved an additional $24 billion to the overall top line for the Defense Department, similar to an additional $25 billion added earlier by the Senate Armed Services Committee. The bills now moved the House and Senate for floor debates and votes. While there seems to be general agreement around the House and Senate policy bills, it is by no means clear what the money committees, the House and Senate Appropriations Committees, will do with their markups. We'll discuss this in more detail in just a moment. And that's a quick look at naval news from around the globe. So, Chris, let's um, let's start right there. Um, you know, I wanted to take the first couple minutes of our uh, free flow discussion part of the pod and talk about two separate but likely linked topics from this past week. You just talked about that uh, Hask Marathon markup session that ended Thursday morning. Um, and, you know, it was clear that Christmas came early, uh, as you detailed, lots of ads that seem more legacy in nature um, than necessarily looking forward and, and preparing for the future. In fact, in that $25 billion plus up, there was no mention of the Pacific Defense Initiative um, or the European Defense Initiative. Uh, and, you know, that has a, a number of people that are trying to bridge the um, the space between the hawks and um, the the administration scratching their head. Um, it would have really helped make the case if there had been some linkage to uh, that forward-looking, um, you know, uh, approach that the the Biden team is is taking. Also, this past week, new Secretary of the Navy Carlos Del Toro was up in the uh, Northeast conducting yard and industry visits. Um, he gave remarks. Uh, at the Southeastern New England Defense Industrial Alliance. Um, and while the SECNAV was right on message, uh, hammering uh, China as, uh, as an adversary and talking about the things that um, a naval force must do to prevent and if um, on, on, uh, to prevent and if necessary, win a conflict with China, um, he didn't exactly play the divest to invest tune that most others in the administration are carrying. So first, I'm interested in your thoughts on the, the markup um, and really the markup process, because, I mean, you've seen lots of these and you, you tend to get less um, animated or, or, or less carried away as, as most defense uh, thinkers do. And then your thoughts on the SECNAV's first couple of weeks uh, on the job. Well, you know, with the with the defense bill process, there, there used to be, you're right, I've been doing this a long time, and there used to be kind of a real sort of majesty to the whole process. And as the year went on, you know, the budget would be presented, the president's budget would be presented to Congress, the House and the Senate would then take it up debate in each case, the House uh, Armed Services Committee and the Senate Armed Services Committee, which do the authorization bills, which are really policy bills. And then the House and Senate Defense Appropriations uh, Committees take up the bill, that's the money. Uh, they don't always match up, uh, but it, it, all four hearings, uh, all, all four committees would have hearings. Uh, they would have debate. They mark up their bills. Uh, it goes to conference. Um, it goes to debate. It uh, goes back to conference. It uh, passes the House, the full House, passes the full Senate. Uh, you, you have uh, more conferences between appropriators and authorizers. And eventually you come up with a defense authorization bill and a defense appropriation bill, each of which goes to the president for signature and to become law. That process has fallen apart 
so much in the past 20 years because Congress can almost never uh, put finish their work on any of their bills before the, the end of the fiscal year, the September 30th, um, end of the fiscal year. And uh, then you get into continuing resolutions, which go on for however many weeks or months, um, and then into the into sometimes well into the next calendar year. And sometimes you you get a, a bill that, that that gets pushed through, and more often you're getting these omnibus bills that kind of crash through at the end, where they get multiple spending bills uh, that Congress should have appropriated for the fiscal year and cram them all together and ram it through at the very last. And then somebody signs and says, we're done. Now we can all go home for Christmas. And everybody's left to sort out what just happened. And that happens every year. It happens even in the best of times. What hath Congress, Congress wrought <laughs> is, a, is, is an annual exercise and always has been. It's much worse now than it ever has been. But, um, Again, we have, you know, it's, it's interesting at the moment. There's, there's broad consensus around, throughout Congress, broad bipartisan consensus, believe it or not, in the, in the, the, with Democrats and with Republicans on the need for a larger Navy, not necessarily for much more Pentagon spending, but for a larger Navy. The Navy itself the, and, and the Defense Department are not really cashing in on that. The, the Trump administration didn't cash in with anything, um, uh, any any continuing support for that. The new administration, the Biden administration, is is not buying into that as well. And yet, Congress is sort of waiting. You know, ask, go ahead, ask us. We might say yes. And that is not a partisan opinion, as as evidenced by the these votes. These are overwhelming votes. There's a lot of, in in the Democratic House now. The appropriators are very silent. It's always difficult to figure out what the appropriations committees are doing. And you know, for the great unwashed public out there, don't think that on the Hill, the appropriators are talking to the authorizers. They're not. They often are not at all. And uh, there's kind of a, you know, screw them, we're going to do what we want to do, and they're going to do what they want to do attitude. Um, it's really, um, it, it's, it, it, Sometimes it's quite amazing that they, these things come out in the end uh, as well as they do, despite all the chaos. But um, there have been many times in the past where authorizers have said, do something, and they write it into law. And the appropriators will say, you may not spend any money to do that thing. No, no money may be allocated for that. And the next 39 times it happens will not be the first 39 times or 320 times. It happens all the time. Uh, whether it's going to happen this year and it's going to happen in these ads totally remains to be seen. I have no idea. And that's one of the problems that is that you often don't know, especially with this chaotic continuing resolution situation and omnibus bills, if that's going to happen or not. Um, it probably is going to happen this year. Um, in one form or another, we'll wait. We'll wait and see. But uh, that's that's why I, I hesitate to get very excited about this. There's a lot of political symbolism in these bills, so they've they've added destroyers. The Navy asked for one destroyer, um, and uh, Congress said that's terrible. We have to add two destroyers. Add another one for two. 
Now these, these latest amendments have added even a third. That in essence expresses the sense of Congress that they support a larger Navy. The practical side of that is that we can't build them that fast. So the, there are two shipyards that build these destroyers, Arleigh Burke class destroyers. One is Ingalls Shipbuilding, uh, Division of Huntington Ingalls in Mississippi. The other one is Bath Iron Works up in Maine, uh, Division of uh, General Dynamics. And that yard in particular is way behind schedule on all of its um, all of its shipbuilding projects. We, we just talked about the Lyndon Johnson. They've only sent two ships on trial, out to sea trials since 2018. Um, that's a terrible record. They're, they're way, beyond, way behind. And if you give them all the money in the world right now, they're, they're only gonna be able to build them so fast. It's, that's, that's just a fact. So whether or not they fund one destroyer this year or two destroyers or three destroyers, it's not at all a question of whether the Navy wants them or whether they'll order them. It's just nobody can build them now whether you order them or not, we'll back order them in essence. So people play with that, with that uh, situation all the time. Same thing with the amphibious assault ship that they just added. The Navy's going to buy it. All these ships are in the Navy's shipbuilding plan. Congress isn't adding anything that's not in the plan, except for another expeditionary fast transport, which only Austell USA and Mobile Alabama builds. Oddly enough, their congressman was a sponsor of this amendment. And it's strongly rumored that all those ships are on the potential chopping block in the upcoming Navy 2023 budget submission and 30 year shipbuilding plan, if we ever see one. Um, so it's sort of doubly ironic that that was an add in there. Uh, the oiler is going to, all these ships again are in the program. They're going to be built. It's not a gift. The question is really what year do you fund them in? So again, you have all this give and take and negotiating with the committees. So while there's a lot of stuff in these things, um, it remains to be seen what are they, number one, what do they all follow through, including watch the money bills, watch the appropriators, where's the money? And number two, does it make much difference at this point or is it just symbolic? It's disappointing, um, as I alluded to in the segment introduction, it, it is disappointing that um, while they took care of their, you know, political interests and added things and moved things and, you know, praised things, um, that there wasn't more uh, done and said about um, emerging technology. I, I think that they could have really bridged um, the need to do both, right? To take care of their political constituencies, but also to appear uh, statesperson-like, uh, national security leader-like, um, and help lead. Um, ha had they, you know, had they been more uh, forceful and more attentive to the types of technology that we know we need, uh, whether it's in, with a conflict with Russia or China. Yeah, a lot of times though that 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 sort of thing shows up in the in the committee report that, that accompanies the bill itself. And the committee report is full of the sense of Congress and their support for, for initiatives. Uh, they're, and they're withdrawing support and, and unconfidence in certain things. Uh, but th th those committee reports are, are very, very important and not necessarily the first thing that people look at when they talk about these bills. So and sometimes it's pretty surprising what, what shows up in there. 
including, you know, sometimes I've read, I have written stories in the past where, you know, I, I, I wrote something that just came out of my little pea brain, you know, a certain topic, a certain issue or a certain phrasing. Um, I didn't get it from anybody. Just, I just happened to write that. And then, you know, five months later, you read the committee report and it's in there. And, and you go, oh my God, look, they read that stuff. They just lifted it and stuck it in and made it all the way through. You never know, but um, it remains to be seen. So you were talking about uh, uh, the new Navy Secretary, Carlos Toro, um, is now talking in various forum, forum, uh, fora, forums, anyway. Um, and, he, uh, and he spoke this week with messaging about the industry to, you know, cut costs and, and be more efficient and, but but again, he didn't talk about. You're right. He didn't talk about divest to invest, which is a theme that the, uh, Chief of Naval Operations Mike Gilday says virtually every time he he speaks in public. What do you make of that? Is, is there anything to is there anything to be made of that? So I think it's you know it's kind of um, the devil and the angel explanation, right? The the devil is. Um, he doesn't buy into what the administration thinks and he, he doesn't want to latch on to that messaging. The angel on my shoulder tells me he, he's just a smarter communicator than the CNO and uh, doesn't feel like he needs to beat that drum because it's not really a popular drum. He knew, he knew his audience and, uh, and, and, you know, talked more about the, the red meat uh, type uh, type things. And instead of, uh, you know, telling them that they needed to eat their vegetables, I'm killing this analogy, but, uh, you know, um, you know, to divest and, and to divest to invest. So, which has really been popular with no one, no one has, has really, you know, liked that, uh, that message. No, it, 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 uh, it's, it, it's lacking in enthusiastic support. That would be an accurate assessment. Okay, so moving on, um, I think uh, everybody listening is well aware of the weather events that have been going on the past week when Hurricane Ida uh, first slammed into, and it literally did slam into uh, the Gulf Coast again, really taking a beat on New Orleans and, um, uh, and came up the coast and then has, has dropped an unbelievable amount of water um, on the Northeast. And even spawned, and spawned a number of tornadoes in northern New Jersey. I'm sorry, southern New Jersey, and uh, even uh, quite near us uh, in uh, Annapolis, uh, Maryland. So the weather weather continues to happen, and of course, the Ida hit uh, New Orleans on the anniversary of Hurricane Katrina doing so in 2005, 16 years later. So just a few thoughts uh, about what this means for the Navy and, 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 and how the Naval shipbuilding program is really dependent in many ways on the, the Gulf Coast. I mean, people, there are high profile yards that build nuclear ships. So the Huntington Ingalls Newport News, which builds all the aircraft carriers or electric boat in New England, which builds uh, submarines. Um, we just mentioned Bath Ironwork, which is building destroyers, some destroyers up in Maine. But you know, the real shipyard center of the country is along the Gulf Coast and vulnerable to these sorts of storms. And it was hit really hard by Katrina. Ingalls Shipbuilding, which is the other, other half of, major shipbuilding half of Huntington Ingalls Industries, in Pascoola builds uh, something like two of three of all the surface ships, all the non-nuclear surface ships in the US Navy. Um, they build 
uh, half the destroyers. They build all the amphibious ships. Um, they build uh, the Coast Guard's uh, national security cutters. Big yard not far away um, in Mobile, Alabama is also USA. They're building uh, the Independence class littoral combat ships. They build fast uh, transports. Uh, further, not far away from them is the Eastern Shipbuilding, uh, which is building the Coast Guard's offshore patrol cutter. Uh, going back to New Orleans, uh, Bollinger Shipyards, uh, just south and south and a little west of uh, New Orleans, builds uh, all the fast response cutters for the U.S. Coast Guard. Uh, not to and there's Metal Shark is around there, which builds a lot of interesting smaller craft. Uh, VT Halter in Moss Point, Mississippi, and now increasingly in Pasadena, Mississippi, uh, is building the, the Polar Security Cutter. Um, it's all right down there and, and more and much more. And it, I mean, it, it sort of some of it stems from the oil industry, uh, the offshore oil industry, and a great deal of the infrastructure down there supports that. But they are hit hard by this stuff. And I mean, Katrina really took a beat on all of them, uh, really blasted Ingalls. Um, and it took years for them to recover. Uh, this time around with Ida, it looks like the major shipbuilding yards escaped serious damage. Um, so it's not, from a shipbuilding point of view, it's not Katrina too. But these events really have impacts and they can set the shipbuilding programs back years. Um, and in Eastern Shipbuilding's case, they were toasted by a hurricane two years ago, just as the as they were nominally getting started on the offshore patrol cutter program, and really took out their yard. Uh, they, they have they have two facilities, and the one that was building the cutters um, really really got uh, blasted. But um, I, I think people are just not all that aware. They don't think shipbuilding when they're thinking the Gulf Coast. And uh, but that really is the case that that is there's more there are more shipyards down in that part of the world than anywhere else in the country. And it's just it, it is vulnerable. If you you know, if you follow the, the science and you follow the discussion um, and, and, you know, I know that this is a um, it's a it's a controversial topic and, and it, it really shouldn't be. But um, you know, as the climate changes and as um, the ripple of the effects of that climate change uh, spread across the globe, I mean, the common wisdom is, is you're going to see more of these types of super storms. You're going to see um, more problems associated with, um, you know, coastal areas, which, you know, duh, is where the, the Navy is. And so, um, you know, we, we kind of need to get, get our arms wrapped around, um, you know, this problem before we find ourselves in, in extremis. Um, in preparing for this discussion, I texted back and forth with um, a, a few folks and, you know, they, they pointed out, they kind of self-described um, climate moderates, if you will. I mean, not, you know, they don't, they don't say the problem doesn't exist and they're not, you know, jumping up and down, holding their breath. Um, saying that we have to do something today, but they point to the fact that, you know, yes, while the, while, you know, Ida hit 
you know, look at the fact that New Orleans did much better, that the pro that there was progress made on the levee system, that that there was more preparation. They even point to the shipyards and say, hey, look, these, you know, over the last couple of years, these yards have learned and they're getting better. So they point to this idea that, okay, we may not be able to turn back the tide um, either literally or figuratively um, on climate change, but by getting ahead of it, by planning, by learning, um, we are able to prevent it from being as bad as it has been in the past. I think so. Um, Ingalls, for Ingalls, a great example. Um, at the, when Katrina hit, uh, they were owned by Northrop Grumman. Um, and, you know, their big problem uh, was, was the storm surge. The storm surge is what really did everybody in down there. Um, New Orleans was done in by flooding when the levees broke. But um, the, the yards, especially, you know, to the east of New Orleans, um, over, over, to, over to Mississippi um, and Alabama and Mobile, um, the storm surge in, in Pascagoula really took out everything. The entire yard was underwater, um, everything, which also meant not only all of their, all their machinery, all their rolling stock vehicles of all kinds, um, but their entire electrical grid shorted out. It was all underwater, just not designed to be underwater. Um, and they were something like, now, now, now the numbers escape me, but it, it was something like 14 feet. They were designed to withstand, but the storm surge in many places was, was, uh, oh, was up to 20 feet. And when they rebuilt the yard, when all that devastation was one thing, and they, they've totally rebuilt that yard. It's very different now. Their facilities, everything down there has been improved. But um, the whole electrical grid, for example, is now well over 20 feet. So it can withstand serious flooding, serious storm surge, and still function. It's not going not, not gonna to short out the, the, the way it did before. So many times you get, you get this destruction, uh, and, and you build back better. It's an, it's an opportunity to, uh, to put back. The big problem last time, of course, with the Navy, uh, the Navy, uh, north of Grumman was tried to game the Navy into paying for a lot of that improved, all that improvements down in Pascagoula. And the Navy was not at all interested in, in underwriting all that. It's like, yeah, this is your problem. You're, you're a private company. Um, you get your insurance for this. We're not your insurance. And the, it was a messy situation with uh, uh, Northrop's underwriters not paying up very, very quickly and the Navy balking at everything. And it, it took a, it, it left bad feeling, bad taste in, in everybody's mouth all around. Um, it was not, not, not a good situation. That, those days are gone, Northrop Grumman is gone. Um, and everybody's moved on from that. But it's an example of the kind of, problems that you get even even when you're trying to build back better that's great how are you going to do it who's going to pay for it um, becomes a big issue and in the meantime uh, you've got eight nine ships in production at that shipyard and you want all of those every single one of those ships to continue and not fall behind because that those as we all know creates its own problems so it really has a it has a rolling effect that can take years and years to shake out so it is, it is pretty dangerous. Anyway, so that's that. Now hear this. Now hear this. Now. All right, I got it, I got it, I got it. Okay, so it's time for Squawk Box, and uh, Mr. Savello this week has some thoughts on how timely 
climate change. Thanks, Chris. So building on today's discussion about hurricanes Katrina and Ida, as well as the increasing vulnerability of our shipbuilding, maintenance, and birthing facilities, it's time to have a serious discussion about climate change and its long-term effects on naval operations. Like many issues in America today, climate change has become emotionally charged and difficult to intelligently discuss. There are some that will run around panicked, hair on fire, saying the sky is falling, demanding immediate change in either behavior, behavior or spending without having a plan or clear way forward. I suppose that's one approach, but what I'm suggesting is a more thoughtful way ahead that considers all of the issues and challenges associated with dealing with the climatological effects being felt and documented across the globe. As navalists and first order thinkers, our audience is uniquely positioned to set the unnecessary emotion aside and let science and reality guide discussions. Simply asked, are we prepared as a naval community to deal with the rising sea levels, super storms and melting ice in the high north? I think the simple answer is no. Climate change presents a logistical, fiscal and force structure challenge to America's Navy and industrial base. As we look at ways to disperse shipbuilding and maintenance facilities, pay for needed pier and berthing upgrades and grow fleet capability and capacity to deal with the security challenges associated with our changing climate. Friend of the show and Naval big thinker Brian McGrath says it best, more water requires more ships. I agree with Brian, and I would simply add that it also requires more thinking on the part of the Naval community. Look for more discussion on this pod and across the Defense and Aerospace Network as we help lead and share the needed discussion that must take place on this important environmental and crucial national security issue. Okay, well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vago Maradian for his support, as well as to the Fincantieri Marine Group and Huntington Ingalls Industries for their continued support of the defense and aerospace effort. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Hey.